Thanks for listening to another life-transforming message from the team here at C3 Southwest Washington. To find out more about our church, visit c3swwa.com. Great, great, great message, Jen. Thank you so much. Why don't you remain standing? We're going to go ahead and take a look at the scripture. Today is Patriot Sunday. Amen. We're excited about that. I want to read you a portion of scripture uh, here in just a second um, that probably is right next to one of your favorite scriptures in Jeremiah. Uh, As always, if you want to follow along, our notes available on our G Drive. We'd love to share those with you so that you're able to, during the week, go back, talk with your family about what God is speaking to your heart. Don't turn church and a Sunday message into just a sermon. Let it be a part of the process where God speaks to you and gives you direction about your life. And so today, even though it's the 4th of July, kind of the weekend, God has some stuff to say to us out of the scriptures, even though it's a man-made holiday celebrating some special activity. Jeremiah chapter 29, 11 is maybe one of your favorite verses because it says, uh, there the Lord, he desires to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you hope and a future. But what I want to read to you takes place a few verses before that, at the beginning of the book of Jeremiah. And there it says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles that I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses, live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there, do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. And so again, today, celebrating Patriots Sunday, we want to talk about some of our things to do with our nation. We want to pray for our nation. We want to pray for our role in the nation, that we can be great citizens while at the same time being great citizens of the larger, more important kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. Amen? Do me a favor. Place your hand over your heart. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for your goodness, your faithfulness to us. Thank you for this nation, imperfect as she may be. Lord, you've done a great work and you continue to do a great work. And we thank you for the favor, the blessing, the advantage that we have having grown up here, all of us. Uh, those of us who have traveled to other countries and other nations, um, some of the hardest spots in our country are some of the easiest spots for other countries. It's the high water mark for them. Lord, on our difficult day, our difficult day is far easier and more luxurious than what many people experience in many other nations. And we want to recognize, Father, your favor, your blessing, your help based on decisions and the foundation that's been laid here, and we want to respect that. And so as we celebrate Independence Day and all that it signifies, Lord, we don't want to forget your role in all of this and understand your place in the future and our role that we play to see our nation be blessed. And so we pray your blessing over your people and the hearing of your word in Jesus' name. And everyone said amen and amen. You can give the Lord a hand and you can be seated. High five the person next to you. And uh, we are going to give out some, uh, some special uh, awards after our gathering is over today uh, for based on costumes. I, if they give out an award for the guy who remembered at 7 o'clock that he had yet to purchase a shirt and convince his wife to drive to Kohl's, I will win that award, but I, I feel like it still looks fairly good. Um, I walked in, and as I came in this morning, we had some of our students in here and some of our team already set up, and Chance, who's in the, it, over in the third seat in the front row, I walked up 
and saw behind him, and he's wearing, I, I think it's a mullet or a wig or something. And I was like, oh, who's the new girl? And then I got up front, and <laughs> I saw it was Chance, and I felt bad, and then I started laughing, and we joked together, and I told him, you're definitely winning an award for something. I don't know what you're going to get, but it's a shoe-in, because that's gr- a great look. Thank you for we're, you know, wearing decorative things and to, to celebrate. Makes it, makes it really fun. As a kid, I can remember one of my first memories of the 4th of July. We lived in uh, Port Royal, South Carolina. My family, extended family lived up in Connecticut, and they came down for the 4th of July. My dad was a drill instructor in the Marine Corps at the time. Fireworks were very legal there. And I remember my dad lighting off fireworks, and I think that there was quite a bit of alcohol involved with it. And as that turned sideways, my aunt, I literally watched her be chased in slow motion by a rocket that chased her around the yard as she was trying to get away, and she turned around and it nailed her right in the eyebrow. It didn't blow up there, but it nailed her in the eyebrow, and it turned into a whole lot of drama for our family, but as a kid, it sure was absolutely very exciting. <laughs> um, I can, you know, growing up in the United States is uh, quite the experience. When I moved here to the Northwest, it was shocking to me the amount of pyromaniacs that are in this area, and I felt at home. There were people, I, I went to one family's house where the dad actually, he was making acetylene bombs with giant balloons and then lighting them on fire, and the concussion for them was almost enough to blow the windows out of cars. And I was like, my people, I am home, it's great. And of course, now there's a ban on all of that. I remember being on a street 10 years ago, probably, in one of the local neighborhoods, and every neighbor was trying to outdo the other neighbor. I don't think anybody had the money to do this, but they were spending more money on fireworks than on any other, probably than their mortgage payment. And the debris was left in the driveway or the roads to be able to be seen for the next couple of days. And it was crazy. And I don't think it's, I don't think in Vancouver now you can blow off any fireworks. Um, and I, I realize that there's some probably good reasons to not do that. Uh, but boy, aren't fireworks exciting? It's not, listen, you can you, you're not going to get in trouble for an opinion in here, okay? I like me some fireworks. Um, you know, the 4th of July is not till tomorrow, but it, it hopefully will be an exciting day for you. Hopefully, you're getting together with some friends, maybe some family. You'll have a good time. One thing I do want to challenge you to do is maybe spend a little time, get out there on the internet, do a little bit of research, remind yourself the thing that we are celebrating. This nation is unusual, This nation is not what memes say or some of the leading kind of slanted videos that are there on the internet disparaging all of the history and all of the past of the United States. The United States is a very unusual experiment amongst all of the nations. Most nations, when our nation was formed, had kings, and the kings that were appointed, they felt like they were appointed by God to do their own will, and anything that they said went. And the nation went according to the king's rules. And all of the economy was to fund his vision. And yet in the 1700s, when our nation began to break away, the colonial uh, movement began to happen, breakdown of colonies, and uh, the pulling away from the king at that time, instead of choosing a different king to serve over them or appointing their own, the people, the founding fathers of our nation decided that they wanted to establish where every man basically was a king and we were all a part of ruling over our own lives. So instead of appointing a king, it was a governance by the people, and as they wrote the Declaration of Independence, and as they wrote the Constitution, these documents were written from a very unusual perspective. 
These documents show that they recognize certain rights from God to be appointed to all people and that the government's responsibility was to protect the rights of the people that were already given by God. There were no rights given, actually, in the Bill of Rights. It was actually a declaration of the rights given by God and the protections that were afforded to the people of the nation so that they could enjoy those rights. A very, very unusual document. Now, I know that there are many sins in the past of maybe some of our founders, but the reality is all of us have sin in our life, and every nation has sin. And while there has certainly been the plight of, of slavery and abortion, the same time when we look at biblical characters, imperfect all are they except for Jesus. And so we watch someone like David become a young man and for him to grow in his experience and for God to bless him, and yet there be moments of sin and repentance and God's good forgiveness and growth in his life. That's probably a great reflection of your life as well, and also should be the track record of a nation that's pursuing after God. Now, hopefully today, the things that I'll say will be encouraging, but I do want to draw some of your attention back to our foundation, and that's what I want to challenge you to take some time. Mom and Dad, go on a place like Prager University, watch some of the five-minute videos that are there, and discover some of the backstory that's not talked about in this generation about many of our founding fathers. These are people who sacrificed a lot with a vision for the future. They pledged their lives and their liberty and their fortunes, not just for themselves, but dreaming of a day where people enjoyed the freedom that God would give them. That is not the heart of most tyrants and the founders of most nations or those who take possession of a nation, but these were unusual men in an unusual time, which has led to a very unusual opportunity called the United States of America. And for all of the negative talk, and certainly there are some things wrong with our nation, but all of the negative talk I hear about our nation and the things that we've done wrong, the reality is there are 41 million immigrants in this country. We are the leading nation where people want to come to this nation for good reason. There are four times more people trying to get into this nation legally than any other nation illegally, and I don't know about illegally, to be quite honest with you. I don't know that those numbers are well documented. Um, that being said, the second leading nation for immigration only has about 10,000 people trying that are legally there in their country. That's, a, again, a ratio of four to one, and of all places, that is Russia's number two. And some of the places that you hear that everybody's going to move to because they no longer like America... They don't even show up on the top 10 list. There's a reason why four times more people buy product A than product B. It doesn't matter the advertising or the naysayers. The proof is usually in the pudding. And so what I would say to you with all the faults and all of the flaws that we experience, this still is a remarkable place to live. And you and I, myself, we can talk about all kinds of privilege that people have. But there's two kinds of privilege that I'm grateful for. I'm grateful for the American privilege that has come my way because I've been to other nations and see what they fight and with, with the types of governments and tyrannies that are there, how the average person is robbed of just some of the common basic needs that they have. And the second other privilege that I appreciate that America also afford, has afforded me is called Christian privilege. There is an advantage to being able to walk and serve God, to walk with him and to experience his blessings in our lives. 
And so let me um, maybe draw your attention for a few moments before I jump back into the scripture um, to some of the founding fathers and some of their own words and some of their own thoughts so that you understand while you hear regularly that this is not a Christian nation and it's not, and while you hear regularly that, that um, maybe this, this, the United States was not founded on biblical or Christian principles, I would draw your attention to proof that exists everywhere, right in the, the writings on the Smithsonian walls, that actually the founding fathers were very clear on what they were trying to establish, the role of scripture in what they were doing, and their reliance on the almighty God of the Bible in order to form this nation. While it is true uh, that not all of America's early founders were Christians, they were all deeply spiritual and they did hold to the truths of the Bible. Um, while not every founding father was a Christian, a Bible believer, or even a true example of virtue, some of the founding fathers, like Thomas Jefferson, Ethan Allen, Thomas Paine, they were disciples of enlightenment rationalism, or, or in other words, just good thinking. Let's, let's figure things out. Let's do it mathematically. Let's have good thought, allow wisdom to bring conclusions. At the same time, those men who ascribed to enlightenment rationalism were very intimately acquainted with the contents of the Bible, they vigorously studied scripture, and they all respected its ethical teachings. American history without the Bible is like trying to understand the human body without its bloodstream. Had there been no Bible, there would be no America as we know it. The nation would not have been born as it was. Perhaps it would not have been born at all. And as we read through the history of our founding fathers, we discover quotes and statements like John Adams, who said, the Bible contains the most profound philosophy, the most perfect morality, the most refined policy that was ever conceived on earth. I believe it to be the only system that ever did or ever will preserve a republic, which we are a republic, not a democracy. We are a democratic republic. There's a difference. He said, I believe that it will be the only system that will preserve a republic in the world. Now, John Jay, who was the first chief justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, the Supreme Court's been in the news lately, um, it's a, he said, the Bible is the best of all books, for it is the word of God, and it teaches the way to be happy in this world and the next. Concepts, therefore, to read, uh, continue, therefore, to read it and regulate your life by its precepts. Man, uh, the justices today who are believers who say anything about God at all are lit on fire. And this is the first supreme justice of the court declaring the role of the word of God in our lives. Um, Abraham Lincoln, in regards to this great book, the Bible, in a letter dated September 7th, 1864, said, I have but to say it is the best gift God has given to man. All the good the Savior gave to the world was communicated through this book. Ulysses S. Grant, he wrote, Hold fast to the Bible on June 6, 1872. It's the sheet anchor of your liberties. Write its precepts in your hearts and practice them in your lives. Calvin Coolidge said, The foundation of our society and government rests so much on the teachings of the Bible that it would be difficult to support them if faith in these teachings would cease to be practically universal in our country. That's a remarkable statement. 
And that absolutely is true. When God is no, dis, no longer regarded and when his word is no longer respected, our, our very founding documents begin to erode because those documents so clearly are, are anchored and formed by the very word of God itself. Um, uh, Theodore Roosevelt's addressing the Long Island Bible Society just weeks before being thrust into presidency when William McKinney was assassinated said, a very large number of people tend to forget that the teachings of the Bible are so interwoven and so entwined with our whole civic and social life that it would be literally, and I do not mean figuratively, I mean literally, impossible for us to figure to ourselves what life would be if these teachings were removed. Last but not least, Franklin Roosevelt said, we cannot read the history of our rise and development as a nation without reckoning with the place the Bible has occupied in shaping the advances of the republic. Make no mistake about it, respect for scripture and respect for the God of scripture permeated the season leading up to and the foundation and following the United States of America. While we argue about prayer in school, I'm going to read you a few stories about the role of prayer that took place in the very founding of this nation by many of our founding fathers. There's this fantastic story from before our nation was formed in 1740. King James, uh, James II, who was the king of, of England, also was the one who issued the creation of the King James Version of the Bible, um, was at war with France. And it was, this was known as King George's War, and it raged from 1744 to... Se- Amen, I know what you're saying. Um, raged from 1744 to 1748. In the midst of the conflict, people who lived in Boston heard that French Admiral Duke D'Anville was preparing to sail his fleet from Nova Scotia to Boston Harbor and attack the city and ravage all of New England. It was the largest naval armada to have threatened the American coastline. The governor of Massachusetts colony had no adequate way to protect Boston or the whopping 15,000 people who made that city up. Man, how this nation has grown. The French were coming to burn the city to the ground. So on Sunday, October 16th, 1746, it was appointed by the governor to be a citywide day of prayer and fasting. Panicked, all the citizens gathered into the city churches with hundreds crowding into one church called the Old South Meeting House. The only thing pleasant that day was the weather. There was a peaceful calm. There wasn't a breeze that ruffled the waters of the bay. No threatening clouds drifted in the skies. But the pastor of the church whose name was Reverend Thomas Prince, the individual that you see on the right. Um, Beautiful man, too much hair, I would say, but a great man of God. Was also a friend of George Whitfield, who if you study American revivals, you'll know, or revival in general, you'll know that story of the Great Awakening. He was a man of prayer. So he climbs into the pulpit on this day of prayer, on that day when Boston had set aside to pray that they're not invaded. And with a powerful force, he climbed into the pulpit and he began to pray for the nation that's being formed. He prayed this way, deliver us from our enemy. And he spoke to the heavens in front of the crowd, send thy tempest, Lord, upon the waters to the east. 
Raise thy right hand. Scatter the ships of our tormentors and drive them from thence. Suddenly, and this is in historical documents, not just one, many. Suddenly, a powerful gust of wind struck the church so hard that the shutters banged, startling the congregation. So Reverend Prince paused, like any good pastor who sees that the environment's working with his message, fires up a little bit more, and he gathers his thoughts, and with great earnestness, he says, sink their ships beneath the power of thy winds. Gust of, uh, suddenly, a gust of wind causes the church bell to chime in some one, a wild, uneven sound, though no man was in the steeple. And he raised his hands towards heaven, and he screamed out, we hear thy voice, O God. We hear it. Thy breath is upon the waters to the east, even upon the deep. The bell tolls for the death of our enemies. And overcome with emotion, he paused. His tears ran down his cheek. He ended his prayer by saying, Thine be the glory, Lord. Amen and amen. That day, a storm of hurricane force struck the French ships. The greater part of the fleet was wrecked. The Duke d'Anville took his own life that day. Only a few sailors survived. In his book, Anatomy of a Naval Disaster, uh, Professor James Pritchard wrote, not a single French military objective was achieved that day. Thousands of soldiers and sailors were dead. No one knows how many men during the expedition. Some estimate as high as 8,000 casualties. So great was the calamity that naval authorities hastened to wind up its affairs and very quickly and effectively the memory of its existence. Back in Boston, the governor set aside a day of thanksgiving, and according to historian Catherine Bowen, she said there was no end to the joyful quotation, if God be for us, who can be against us? That's a story of our history. Did you like that so much? Let me give you another story. September 4th, my birthday, only in 1774. The early colonial fa founding fathers are gathering for the very first Continental Congress. Before tackling the weighty issues of how to separate from England, they acted on a motion by Thomas Cushing from Massachusetts. <laughs> Massachusetts has learned something about prayer. To begin their business with prayer. Some opposed the motion because of the diversity of the denominations that were uh, represented by all the delegates. Well, you go to this church, that church, that church. Whose pastor is going to pray? Uh, maybe no one should because I don't really like your pastor. Finally, Samuel Adams, the firebrand of the revolution, a devout member of the congregational church rose, and he said that he was no bigot, and he would hear a prayer from any gentleman of piety and virtue who was at the same time a friend to his country. Adams then nominated a local Anglican pastor, Jacob Duche, to lead in prayer, and the delegates agreed. About the same time, a rumor swept through Philadelphia that was later proven untrue, but it was that Boston was being shelled now by the British cannons years after they had overcome the French uh, challenge. So they, as they got up the next morning, the delegates were assembled in Carpenter's Hall, for the agreed-upon prayer. They were all tense. They were all confused. They were in, a, in that room were such men as George Washington, John Adams, Sam Adams, John Hancock, Patrick Henry. So Duche opened up with his Anglican prayer book to the prescribed reading in the Anglican church for that day, 
And he read from Psalm 35, and the delegates felt like this was a promise from the heavens to them at this moment. Duché read, plead my cause, O Lord, with those who strive with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Let those be put to shame and brought to dishonor who seek after my life. Let those be turned back and brought to confusion who plot my hurt. Duché then led in a powerful prayer lasting about 10 minutes, which has now been called the most famous prayer of the American Revolution. He said in part, O Lord, our heavenly Father, high and mighty King of kings and Lord of lords, who dost from thy throne behold all the dwellers on earth and reignest with power supreme and uncontrolled over the kingdoms, empires, and governments. Look down, God, in mercy, we ask you, on these American states who have fled to thee from the rod of the oppressor and thrown themselves on thy gracious protection, desiring to henceforth be dependent only on thee and not a king. Be thou present, O God of wisdom, and direct the counsels of this honorable assembly. Enable them to settle things on the best and surest foundation that the scene of blood may be speedily closed in order that harmony and peace may be effectually restored, and truth and justice, religion and piety prevail and flourish amongst the people. Preserve the health of their bodies and the vigor of their minds. Shower down on them and the millions they represent such temporal blessings as thou seest expedient for them in this world, and crown them with everlasting glory in the world to come. All this we ask in the name and through the merits of Jesus Christ, thy Son and Savior, amen. Afterwards, John Adams described the event in a letter to his wife, Abigail. He said, Mr. Duche appeared and read several prayers in the established form from his book, and then read the collect for the seventh day of September, which is the 35th Psalm. You must remember, sweetheart, this was the next morning after we heard of the horrible rumor of the cannoning of Boston. I never saw a greater effect upon an audience. It seemed as if heaven had ordained that psalm to be read on that morning. After this, Mr. Duche unexpectedly, to everybody, struck out into an extemporary prayer which filled the bosom of every man present. I must confess, I have never heard a better prayer or no one so well pronounced, such fervor, such ardor, such earnestness, such pathos, and in language so elegant and sublime for America, for the Congress, for the province of Massachusetts Bay, and especially for the town of Boston. It has had an excellent effect on everyone here. According to other accounts, many of the other delegates were in tears, some on their knees. It was as if the Lord himself had come down into the room to receive the prayers of the frightened but determined revolutionaries. Duché's prayer was so braced, Duché's prayer so braced the Continental Congress that he henceforth started each session in prayer for the Continental Congress, becoming in effect America's first congressional chairman. The reason why they pray as Congress meets is because when they first met, before we became a nation, they were concerned about what was going on, and while some were frustrated that maybe someone would pray that they didn't like, they band together in prayer, and God visited them there and gave them the confidence that prayer was going to be the thing that took the Congress forward. 
Let me give you one last story. Is that okay? Like you have a choice. These, these are the realities of the founding of our nation. The fact that it's been controversial to end a prayer with, in Jesus' name, has not always been the case. Because as I've read you documents, people in Congress have clearly used the name of Jesus. Though it does not appear in the Declaration of Independence or in our Constitution, make no mistake, the Founding Fathers were very, very respectful and very trusting in, the, as they quoted, the divine providence, God himself leading, organizing, and help the, helping them to form as a nation and to protect the God-given rights of all of their citizens. So as George Washington stepped onto the crowded second-floor balcony of the old federal building in lower Manhattan, he took his place beside a large decorative Bible. A thunderous roar erupted from the sea of people on Wall Street, followed by a tense silence as everyone strained to hear this man's voice. George Washington would not say much, only two words, but those syllables would shape the ages to come. This man was about to change history. He was about to take the oath of office as the first president of the United States of America. George Washington was dressed in a modest, double-breasted brown suit with buttons embossed with eagles. A sword dangled at his side. His face was careworn. The Bible before him, bound in rich brown leather, had been hastily borrowed from the altar of the nearby St. John's Lodge. It rested on a red cushion held by Samuel Otis, who was the Secretary of State, uh, Secretary of the Senate, and it was open to Genesis chapter 49, the passage containing the blessing of Jacob to his 12 sons who were destined to become a great nation. After placing his hands on the Bible, the general listened to the oath of office, which was quoted by Robert Livingston, Chancellor of New York. And after hearing the final words to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States, Washington said, I do. And then he did something extraordinary. To the thrill of the crowd, and in full view of everyone present, he removed his hand from Genesis 49. He reverently bowed down and kissed the Bible. It is done, Livingston cried to the crowd. Long live George Washington, President of the United States. And the multitude burst into cheers, shouting, yelling, weeping, and rejoicing as the father of their nation quietly turned and disappeared into the Congress building to give his inaugural address to the members of Congress. In that speech, Washington said, no people can be bound to acknowledge and adore the invisible hand which conducts the affairs of men more than the people of the United States. Every step by which they have advanced to the character of an independent nation seems to have been distinguished by some token of providential agency. The propitious smiles of heaven can never be expected on a nation that disregards the eternal rule of order and right, which heaven itself has ordained. On that spring day, 1789, hundreds of witnesses saw Washington lay his hands on God's word and kiss its pages. And those who have heard his remarks took notice of his reverence towards the God of heaven, who has revealed his eternal rules and orders and right, an unmistakable reference to scripture. The founders of the United States of America revered the Bible because it reflected their awareness of God's authority over the nations. Washington did not place his hand on the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution of the United States, as hallowed documents as those might be. 
nor did he kiss the pages of any other religious or secular tome. It was the Bible that sanctified the moment. The Bible he knew had ushered American history to this point. It is the Bible that made America. Amen? Amen? Amen. Well, you have to agree because it's history. And I think we would do well to study history to know actually the facts because the past can speak towards the future. So I think I have like three minutes left to, to preach. Is that true? Am I down to 259, Steve? Yeah? Well, we're going to have some problems. Um, with that, let me just reread this portion of scripture out of Jeremiah chapter 29, 11 to you, or 29, 4 through 7 to you, because I want to give you a challenge as a citizen of a nation. We, we probably, most of you in the room, you are citizens. Some of you might be, have immigrated here. Some of your families may have generations away. My family immigrated here. Part of my family was Native American, so it's a big mix of different backgrounds that come our way. But for generations, my family have been Americans. And as a Christian who is also an American, God informs me in his word on how to be a member of the kingdom, a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, while also being a citizen of a nation in this world. And he describes it here. He says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles who I've sent into exiles from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons, give them to your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there, do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare." And just studying through this portion of scripture that is really about the Israelites, but is a blueprint for the New Testament, you and I, as we say yes to Jesus, we step out of the kingdom of this world, we cross the line, and we become citizens within the kingdom of heaven. Every time you read the New Testament and Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven, he's not talking about after you die and going to heaven. He's talking about what you can expect and how you should live as someone who is a citizen functioning in a different nation called the nation of this world, and how to take ground, how to live your life, how to live well, how to experience your, your king's blessing in your life while still being basically in another nation or the nation of the world. And so the first thing I get out of this scripture is I'm reminded that while I live in this world, I am an exile. This is not my home. This is not my place. This is not where I'm from. This is not, while I have paperwork and a passport that shows me to be an American, I could be a member of any nation. And again, I'm grateful to be a part of this nation. Uh, guys, why don't you give me about five more minutes so that you guys don't stand up here forever, okay? Is that okay? Thank you, guys. Um, that's not awkward, is it? Okay. Um, it, while you and I are in this nation and we are, we are citizens of this nation or any other nation, when you say yes to Jesus, you become a citizen of heaven, a bona fide one with certain rights and certain freedoms. If you were to travel to a different nation while you have to function in that nation, that nation does not have the same authority over you or backing for you that your home nation has. And what I love about this is that we are citizens of heaven before we are citizens of anything else on this planet. As we say yes to Jesus, our citizenship is citizenship of heaven. And everything in this world comes second to our citizenship in heaven. While 
everything happening in America matters a lot to me. None of it matters anywhere near as much as what is happening within the kingdom of heaven on this earth. And while elections are important and who's in power is important and whatever rules are important, there is something that supersedes all of these things in my life and every place my feet touch ground, and that is the kingdom of heaven. And I want to I really reinforce to you, while we have had poor presidents and we have had great presidents, when Jesus is your king, you can expect all of the benefits of heaven to be yours, regardless of the world that you're experiencing. Let me say something that I think is important to know. Christians can create governments, and governments can create citizens, but governments cannot create Christians. I'm going to say it again. Christians can create governments, and governments can create citizens, but governments cannot create Christians. And so while I really value our Constitution and love the document and love so many things about what it stands for and what it's accomplished, the reality is with all of our judicial system, the three branches of government, you cannot legislate Christianity. I think the value of our founding documents are that they fight to protect our God-given rights, but regardless of what nation I live in, while those laws may make it easier, God has formed his own law for me that I enjoy, I walk in, and I derive great life and strength from it. And just because men create laws cannot change the heart of men to follow those laws. It may force men to follow the letter of the law, but how many of you know your parents told you to do certain things, and in your heart you were not doing them while your body was? And while I can make laws about all sorts of things and many of those laws are excellent, I cannot change the human heart. Jesus understood this, so when he came to, to bring his kingdom of, onto this earth, he did not do it through the political process, though he's not against the political process, though he's not against you being involved with the political process. In fact, some of you should get more involved and should probably run for office the way to change lives is not create new laws, it is to change hearts. And the kingdom of heaven has the ability to do that. And so while you and I should be very involved with policy, with laws, to think that that somehow is going to make a Christian nation, that is incorrect. What makes a Christian nation are the Christians who live in that nation, who function on the behalf of the kingdom of God, and win one heart and one mind at a time. There have been lots of things that our nation has tried to do to make certain things legal or illegal. Go back and study the history of prohibition. And there were many people concerned about the impact of alcohol on our nation. So they declared our nation to be dry. Now, it's, it sounds perfect on paper, but guess what? In that instance, there were still people that did what they did. And a black market was created for people to, and, and also um, tre tremendous underground of, of, of uh, illegality that began to take place and the rise of corruption and gangs and all sorts of institutions like that because you can't legislate men into morality. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't fight for great laws that are especially biblical, but you and I have to understand that Jesus went after people's hearts because five seconds with Jesus changes the heart. Now a man no longer needs a law. He just needs to follow Jesus. And fortunately, our founding fathers were already impacted 
by the presence of God and the word of God. But you and I will never reach people through the law, although the law is important. Where we really need to do our work is not necessarily getting a law put into place, which we should do, but it's in reaching our neighbor with the message of Jesus so that he can touch their hearts and change their hearts because we are exiles. Governments can create citizens. Governments cannot create Christians. Amen. So there's a number of verses there to take a look at. I'm going to have you go through the notes and check those out. We are certainly exiles. Next thing in my notes, you'll notice, is the command to, I'm just going to call it like this. I could read these verses, but you've already read them that are in bold. Um, I would say this, that God has actually called us while we're in this world to thrive and to shine. You know, the fact that we're citizens from heaven, there's some different philosophies that Christians have bought into. And one of the philosophies is to to pull back to protect ourselves and hold on till we get to heaven. Instead, of, it's the concern that in this world, the, the dirty world that we live in and all the evil, it might get us. So pull back in the corner and protect yourself and hold on and try to stay pure until you're called home someday. When we look in scripture though, and we see there in the book, uh, uh, the scripture that I read to you uh, in, the, in the book of Jeremiah, there was the challenge to not stay reserved, not to hold back, but to lean forward and to thrive as people, to have families, to build homes, to start businesses, to, to launch out, create inventions, and, and to try to accomplish things in the community, to get involved with politics, to, to, to basically to thrive in your life. And in the process, you would actually thri- you would shine before people in your thriving. You know, the heart of God is for you and I to be successful in the things that we do because our good works... Not just our prayer, which is a good work. Not just our giving, which is a good work. Not just our going to church, which is a good work. Those aren't the things that are to shine, but all of our good works are to shine before men so that they see God as our source and they ask, how, how can God be a part of my life? Because when you are committed to the God of this universe, to the king of the kingdom that we're a part of, and he causes your marriage to thrive, You're going to find yourself living in a world where people really struggle with their marriages. And in shining and you're thriving, there'll be questions and you'll be able to lead them to your source. I believe that scripture wants to see us succeed financially, succeed in the marketplace, to succeed in business. Because when you and I do, it catches people's attention. It is part of the light that is on the top of the of the hill that people see. And when they look at that light, they understand the source of that light is God himself. We've got several business owners here in the church. And when you get around and you get to talk to them and you're like, so how did you do it? And they'll they'll lean forward real quick and tell you, man, I pray a lot and God has opened miraculous doors for me. And what they end up doing is they end up declaring their source as being God. That's a remarkable thing for people who live in just this world and don't have the king of the universe to lean upon. And they hear that there's a source that they might be able to draw into to help them to be successful as well. When you and I, when we thrive and we shine, it definitely propels the kingdom of God out into this world. I love athletes who succeed and give God glory. I love business owners who give God glory. I love people who create inventions and give God glory. They accomplish good works as the scripture teaches and they shine. Let me give you the last one, and you can go ahead and stand with me. Uh, I'll skip over the verse. Go ahead and stand with me, and we're going to pray here for a moment. 
Um, the final thing that I see in the scripture there is we're called to seek the welfare of our city or the place where we live. As exiles living in the United States of America, as citizens of heaven, we want to see our nation to thrive, to do well. And while it has its problems, we have a role to play in seeing it do really, really well. But the reason, part of the reason why we want to see it do well is not just for national pride. Really, it's because our well-being is tied to the well-being of our nation. We've got some children in our church who, who have experienced international adoptions, and I know their backstory. And the difference between where they used to be and where they are today is significant. Yeah. Just right down to the simple idea of water. There's some of the children that we have in our world who in their previous life in living in a different nation did not have access to fresh water. That tap that you turn on every day that you've come so accustomed to, you freak out if for some reason it's not working, that is one of the favors of heaven that God has poured out on this nation that not every nation has. And to watch those same children now years later who have switched coverings, they've switched nations, they've switched cities, the welfare of this nation, the welfare of their family that's adopted them has radically impacted the health of their bodies by the simple issue of water. And I could go into many more, much more graphic examples of why their lives are better off, but you have to understand your welfare is tied to the well-being of your family, of your community, of your state, and of your nation. And one of the things that we were commanded to do in Scripture was to pray. The Scripture there in the book of Jeremiah says, Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. I don't know how much you pray for your nation. I don't know how much you pray for your president. I don't know how much you pray for your governor. I don't know how much you pray for your mayor, if you even know your, mayor, your mayor's name. But I would challenge you as good citizens of the kingdom of heaven, this is a command in scripture, and it's part of our arsenal to shape this world. I used to always pray for whoever was going to be the president and almost never prayed for the governor. Why? What's the big deal? The governor doesn't have any impact on my life until... 2019, 2020. Then I started realizing, oh my gosh, Lord, I better start praying. And you know, God is able to do incredible things. I've read stories of people, governors, kings, and we see it all through scripture. God visiting some of the worst tyrants of all time. People like Cyrus, Nebuchadnezzar, um, all, all uh, Artaxerxes in scripture. Pagan people who were having basically Christians killed and experienced with God and they changed the rule of their land because why? People prayed. And so I want to challenge you to make prayer for your nation a priority. Students, make it a priority. Every men's prayer, every women's prayer that we come in, column number one for our prayer time is pray for the United States of America. Why? Because scripture commands us to pray for our nation. There are a lot of things screwed up here. There's a lot of good things. There's a lot of things screwed up. Okay, my post on Facebook is not going to change any of it. My 10 friends in my echo chamber are going to give me a thumbs up. 
but prayer changes things significantly. It can sink an army that's coming to get us. It can set into motion a nation. It can change your life. Prayer changes things. And so we aggressively pray that God will bless our nation. And for time's sake, this is what we're gonna do. We got three sections in the church, and we're gonna take two minutes and we're gonna pray. Now, hopefully you'll spend more than two minutes in time to come, but I want to challenge you. We're gonna pray for our city. Really, we're praying for our nation. That's what we mean by city. And I'm gonna ask this section with fervor, with effort, with confidence, with faith, to pray that God visits our land. The reason why our founding fathers had experienced so much of the Bible and so much of God is because of some significant revivals that had hit the land during that time. And these guys who otherwise would have not had a love for God, they experienced the love of God and their love returned to God in everything they did, including the forming of our nation. What we really need is not more laws. We need God to visit our nation. You need God to visit your friends. You need God to visit your family. We need God to visit our land. Can I have an amen? If God does that, I promise you the, the laws will change easily. So I'm going to ask you all to pray for that. In the center section, I want you to pray for our collective thrive and shine. To pray for believers to do well, to live well, to marry well, to parent well, to do business well, to spend well, to, to vote well, to get out there and be a part of the community and be good, thriving, and shining, respectable citizens that cause people to look at the source of their thrive and ask about the God that they serve. Amen? Can you guys pray for that? Okay, final section. I'm going to have you pray for current and future leaders and laws. Oh, Lord, touch this group. We need their help. We need you to, listen, I need you people to pray over in this section. Okay? But I want you always to pray this way. Don't ever pray a fleshly prayer. Lord, I pray that you will just kick that politician in the teeth and God, I pray that you'll, you'll snuff them out. What you want to pray is that God will visit them and touch their hearts. They'll show up in the White House and show up in the governor's mansion and show up in their family and prove to them that he is really who he says. You know, we can argue back and forth, but a man with an experience from God is never at the mercy of a man with an argument. A man who experiences something at the hand of God is changed and he carries that within him, everything that he does. And so we want to pray that God visits our leaders. He visits our future leaders, which then radically impact the laws that we're going to live under. Amen? Okay. Okay, get your hands out of your pockets. Get your hands off your hips. Yeah, are you ready to, ready to pray aggressively? I'm not saying to jump out on the chair ahead of you, but our posture for prayer is forward-leaning, and we believe God, and we're excited about the opportunity to pray because we actually believe our prayer is going to make a difference. And it does, it will, okay? And so at the volume at which you would sing, praying out loud, you know your section, you're the first section, move of God on our land, our thrive and our shine, our current and future leaders and laws, we're going to pray together, okay? And then I'm going to step off the platform, we're going to sing a song and we're going to be dismissed. And we're going to eat some hot dogs. Because this is America. They're good for you today, only today, but they're good for you. These are good for you hot dogs, made in America, okay? Okay, are you ready to pray? Okay. Count of three. Ready? Go. Father, we thank you today, God, for your goodness. Come on, lift up your voice. We thank you, God, today for your faithfulness. I thank you that we live in this nation. We thank you for the United States of America. We thank you for the righteous foundation that was there. Many people who had sacrificed life and liberty and potentially their, their fortunes 
in order to be able to see a nation established that would be governed by and for the people, in order to be able to experience the very privileges and liberties given by God, and the forming of the documentation and all the governance was to protect those God-given liberties and rights. Father, we thank you for this nation. We pray a blessing over this nation. And Father, though through the years, though we've drifted, though we've had our problems, though we've had our moral impasses, we've had our struggles, we've tried to legislate morality, we've tried to outlaw morality. Father, you've visited our land. There's been great awakenings. There were the uh, the LA, uh, LA revivals that took place at the turn of the century. God, we're so thankful that in the midst of the chaos of men governing men, Father, your kingdom is able to be established in the hearts and the lives of people that make up the nation. Father, you're able to breathe upon the people of the nation. God, we thank you that you are going to move across our land. God, we are excited about the future. We are excited about the role we have to play. People in this house will be used by you to bring a move of God to this region and other churches, to our regions, to our states, and to our nation, God. Father, we are one nation under God, and so we pray for the visitation of God. Visit our schools, visit our colleges, visit our businesses, big, visit our big tech, company, tech companies. God, visit the vi big advertisers and the key players in industry and in investment, God. Father, as they lean in to try to make all men happy, regardless of what holiday it is, Father, we're praying for a future where we lean forward to make the God of heaven happy by what we say, what we sell, what we buy, what we do to our fellow man. God, we pray for our thrive and shine as Christians. God, thank you that you've called us to be the head and not the tail. You've promised to bless the work of our hands, to prosper us as we followed after you. In Jesus' own words, that we, we, would, we would experience far more receiving than we would ever sacrifice in this lifetime. And at the same time, God, we want to use that for your glory, to reflect you, your divine intervention in our lives. Father, your prosperity from heaven coming into our lives through relationships and through open doors and through, God, just uh, the favor that's upon us, the resources we have. We ask you, God, to raise us up to a place where we live well and we also reflect you well. And God, in the process, all men are drawn unto you because of our works. <coughs> Father, finally, we pray over our current politicians, our current leaders. Father, we ask you to bless them. I pray for that. You said to bless our enemies. In some cases, they are our enemies, but they are still over us. And we pray for your, your genuine blessing on them. Because, Father, your blessing brings a change of hearts. God, visit them in their chambers. Visit them as they're making rules. Visit them in their conversations. Visit them in unexpected moments, in unexpected ways as you visited uh, Artaxerxes, as you visited King Cyrus, as you visited King Nebuchadnezzar. God, you are able to visit our presidents, our Congress, our, our councilmen and women. Father, you are able to visit our governors, all of our Supreme Court, all of our, our judicial branch. You are able to visit all of these people. And so God, we ask you to visit them and we ask you to raise up a new generation of people whose hearts are after you, that are after being constitutionalists after seeing the protection of God-given rights to people covered. We pray, God, that they'll be Christian people, that their hearts will be after you. And though we can't legislate Christianity, we can certainly protect the rights, the God-given rights of people in our nation while expanding the kingdom at the same time. And so, Father, we thank you for your goodness. 
We thank you for this time to pray. You said to pray for the welfare of the city that we dwell in because our, our welfare is connected. And Lord, we want to do well. We know you want to do well, us to do well. And so we pray for your help. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And everyone said, amen and amen. Thank Thanks for listening. To find out more about our pastors, leaders, and what we do at C3 Church, visit our website at c3swwa.com.